Welcome. If you're listening, I'm going to assume that you find yourself relating to the concept of quiet BPD in some way. Maybe you've read or heard about it, and it feels like it describes you quite a bit. You might currently be diagnosed with BPD, or you could be suspecting that this is what's contributing to the struggles you've had for so long. In which case, you might be on a journey of recovery, or you have been for a while. You could also be someone who loves a person with BPD, and you want to know more about what they're going through. Or maybe you just got diagnosed yourself, and you're looking for answers. No matter what your situation is, you've come to the right place. I think so. So, let's get started. don't know me, my name is Avery, and I live with BPD and PTSD. I am 28 years old. I identify as queer and non-binary, so I use they-them pronouns. I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder when I was 24 years old, back in 2019, by a clinical psychologist. And this was after I had been in stress-induced psychosis and I decided that I had to seek help. When I was 24, I had spent the last 10 years of my life struggling with my mental health, and I was wondering constantly what was wrong with me. You know, I was often told by doctors and other adults around me that it was only hormones and that things would, like, chill out when I grew up. Like, I know that teenage hormones do cause mood swings, like, I get it, but I seem to always have this baseline anger and resentment for everyone and everything around me. You know, I I had a lot of symptoms that were really screwing up all aspects of my life, and I didn't understand why. And at times, I just had this feeling or this thought in the back of my mind, like, this has to be this is beyond depression and anxiety you know like that cop-out half diagnosis that doctors give people when they don't feel like referring people out to mental health professionals at least that was the case for me a lot of times I felt like no one else could relate to me I often felt extremely misunderstood and that made me really emotionally isolated. I remember in high school I had a school counselor and she told me that I seemed to just be making problems up just to have them. That was wild to me, like it was so dismissive and invalidating. I wasn't making up problems. Like I wasn't just making up problems to have, like I knew that there was something wrong with me, I just didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't have the understanding 
to be able to figure out what the issues were. I have never forgotten that conversation. So throughout my early 20s, everything just progressively got worse. Um, my relationships became more and more unstable and short-lived, including my friendships. Uh, my romantic relationships just became more and more fucked up. The more I got abandoned, the greater lengths I would go to make sure that I would not get abandoned. And the greater lengths that I would go, it didn't prevent the inevitable. Like, it just became a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? I couldn't keep up with school because my emotions were so intense and dysregulated about everything. To cope with those intense emotions, I, I was engaging in just, like, increasingly dangerous and impulsive behavior. And I dealt with years of this before I finally hit a breaking point. And I had gone into stress-induced psychosis. During psychosis, I became a very big danger to myself. And when I realized this, I also realized that it was really up to me to take control and start finding the right people to ask for help from. After emailing people, I ended up being on a wait list for three months before being able to get in for an assessment with a clinical psychologist. And at that point, it was time versus money. I was fortunate enough, I was privileged enough to be able to go private. And so I only had to wait three months. I just had to survive for three months. And when I got in to see my psychologist, she assessed me and eventually diagnosed me with BPD. When I got the diagnosis, I felt a lot of emotions all at once about it. I felt a lot of conflicting emotions. I felt really relieved that there was a name for something that I had been struggling with my entire life. And uh, because there was a name for it, that so many other people face it too. And so I didn't feel alone anymore. I felt like, oh my God, okay, this is real. I'm not crazy and this is real. I also felt scared that this was real. So at first I was like, oh my God, this is real. I'm not crazy. This is real. This is, this is real. Oh my God, this is real. This is real. And I would have to do a lot of work to help myself. I have to face this now, for sure. So I did DBT with her for eight months and I thought I was done. I thought I did it. You know, like I did DBT, I kicked BPD's ass, woo! Uh, it was only 11 months later that I was diagnosed with PTSD after facing months of domestic violence during the COVID lockdowns. I felt like all of my work was erased and more was tacked on. You know, PTSD and BPD together are just a horrible and debilitating combo. I was finishing my degree while unpacking and processing this trauma because I had to. Or again, like, I, I was not... I was a, a danger to myself. I became a danger to myself again. 
I really needed to unpack and process this trauma and get the help that I needed. And it couldn't wait. Finishing my degree and unpacking and processing this trauma, that was one of the hardest things I've done to date. I was isolated because of COVID. I feel like it would have been a lot easier, you know, if I had an in real life support system, but I was alone. I was living on my own. I was alone. I only had my psychologist really to help me process my trauma and provide support. And I needed community. So I went out on a whim and I started to make videos on TikTok about my disorder and my healing journey and just to see what would happen just for shits. And it's now two years later and I have met some of the most incredible people along my healing journey who seriously get it, like they understand. And they all have really unique journeys of their own. I've met some of them. I've traveled across the country to meet some of them. Some of them live all the way across the world. And some of them you'll even hear from soon. And they have incredible stories and things to tell you. And my hope is for people who relate to quiet BPD to feel seen because often we don't feel seen. Throughout my content creation journey and my time speaking about quiet BPD, I've heard a lot of just, like I'm just gonna be candid, I've heard a lot of whack shit, just bonkers stuff online about BPD and Quiet BPD is no exception. So what is borderline personality disorder? There are a ton of places you can read about BPD, but I'm gonna read what they say on the National Institute of Mental Health website. Borderline personality disorder is a mental health condition that severely impacts a person's ability to regulate their emotions and to cope with that lack of emotion regulation. People with BPD have an increased impulsivity. The rest of their symptoms really negatively impact their relationships with other people. Technically, like clinically, you need five out of nine criteria. There are nine diagnostic criteria in the DSM. Things like efforts to avoid real or perceived abandonment, like plunging headfirst into relationships or ending them just as quickly. Kind of a leave before you can be left sort of thing. And these efforts are frantic. They're desperate, they're frantic, they're intense. Another symptom is a pattern of intense and unstable relationships with your family, your friends, your loved ones. Next one is a distorted and unstable self-image or sense of self. A lot of people will confuse this with just like a consistently low sense of self-worth. It's not that. It's actually an unstable sense of self. You don't know who you are. You often change things about yourself to the point where you have no idea how to define yourself. You don't know who you are. That doesn't just cover trivial things like the way you dress, 
or your hair color, your favorite foods. Like, it doesn't just mean that. It means the core of your identity, your values, your goals and your dreams, how you want to spend your time and the relationships that you want to cultivate with other people. Um, because you don't know who you are, it's very hard to find a sense of direction in your life in various ways. Next one is impulsive and often dangerous behaviors. Um, and this can include things like spending sprees, um, unsafe sex, substance abuse, reckless driving, binge eating. Just know if you're doing these kinds of things during a time where your mood is really elevated and only then, that's something to bring up with whomever's assessing you, with whatever professional's assessing you, because that's an important thing to note. Next one is self-harming behavior. We won't get into too much detail, but it, it's not just cutting. Next one is recurring thoughts of su suicidal behaviors or threats. It's really, it's a very common experience for people with BPD to have suicidal ideation easily triggered. Another one is intense and highly variable moods, so mood swings, with episodes lasting from like a few hours to a few days. From my experience, my mood swings are not just random. Um... They're directly affected by things that happen. They're directly affected by external stimuli. So it's not like I'm just like sitting at my desk doing work and then all of a sudden I just feel like shit out of nowhere and then like 20 minutes later I feel great. For example, when I used to be a barista, a lot of interactions with customers uh, would trigger a mood swing. Right? They would trigger, like, a major swing into anger. That would last for, like, a few days. And then I would bounce right back. Sometimes, instead of returning to baseline, the pendulum would swing in the other direction, where, it, like, nothing could trigger my anger. Just, I was, like, the most patient person. Almost too, too patient. Like, I would just let everything slide when I shouldn't. Next symptom is chronic feelings of emptiness. Um, that's a really big one. And I hate this symptom. I hate it. I hate experiencing this symptom. But I also just hate the fact that it's defined this way because for the longest time, I didn't understand what it meant. Like, when the when my psychologist was asking me about it, I was like, I don't know. I don't know what this means. Like, what, like, what is this experience? I didn't know that various feelings that I was having about certain things was emptiness. For example, um, I would be doing something really, really fun, um, that I liked, like, I, or I would be playing, like, a video game or something that I was really, really into, and then, like, randomly, like, just kind of out of nowhere, it would just hit me, where I would feel like doing this activity was entirely pointless, and then I would just, like, delve into an existential crisis and feel like nothing matters so why even bother and then I would stop being able to feel joy from whatever activity I was doing 
that's how I experienced chronic emptiness. But before, it was just really hard. Like, before I knew that that was emptiness, I didn't understand what emptiness was. So that's why I wish they would, like, flesh this definition out more. Second last one, number eight. Inappropriate, intense anger or problems controlling anger. For the longest time, I had a baseline anger and resentment for everything and everyone around me. And things got worse when I worked too long in the service industry. Like, I was constantly on edge wondering which customer was going to be the next one to set me right off. And if I had a sour interaction with someone, I wouldn't be able to let it go. It's really hard for me even now. Not so much anymore, but it's really hard for me to let things go. It takes a very long time for my anger to return to baseline. Uh, I will be mad about something for days or weeks where a person without BPD would be angry at the same thing, but they would only be angry for like, an hour or two, maybe a day. And they're not distracted so badly by their anger. You know, like they can kind of still do activities, like they can carry on with their day and just kind of be brooding. Whereas I would be so engulfed in my anger that I couldn't function anymore. Like I had to go, I had to basically just, I would shut down. And finally, the last one is feelings of dissociation. Like feeling cut off from yourself observing yourself from outside your body, feeling like you're living in a dream or that nothing's real. And another part of this particular symptom is like very fleeting, like stress-induced paranoia. Thinking everything is out to get you. People have ill intent when they've shown no sign of it. And I experience that a lot. So that's BPD. That's like a rundown. So we covered BPD very casually. What is quiet BPD though? It's important to know the context of the BPD subtypes. Dr. Theodore Milan was an American psychologist who did extensive research on personality disorders. And he came up with four subtypes for all these personality disorders, not just BPD, because he noticed that people don't express or they don't like cope with these symptoms in the exact same way. The four subtypes of BPD are quiet, also known as discouraged, impulsive, self-destructive, and petulant. Uh, I don't really like the term petulant. I feel like there could be a better one, but that's what it's called. And the subtypes are not a diagnosis. So you can't really be diagnosed with quiet BPD. It's not a separate disorder to BPD. That's really, really important to note. The subtypes are becoming more accepted in the BPD community but they're meant to be a describing tool to help people understand and explain the way their BPD presents itself. So the subtypes acknowledge that people with BPD are not a monolith. What is quiet subtype BPD? 
Quiet BPD is a subtype that's often described as acting in rather than acting out. I don't really, I, I feel like there's a better way to define that because the term acting out does have some negative connotations. You know, it, it suggests that people who act out or that they externalize their symptoms are bad and that's not it's not true we're not doing a morality contest here so what i prefer to say is that symptoms are more internalized rather than externalized someone with bpd someone with quiet bpd will typically take all of their emotional turmoil out on themselves so they'll internalize it they'll absorb it they'll swallow it common experiences of quiet BPD include things like suppressing or denying your feelings of anger. So, like I said, it's kind of swallowing your anger instead of expressing it. Um, withdrawing a lot when you're upset. Cutting people off. Um, like, like secretly resenting people. You know, and that comes from the anger you're swallowing. Lots of internalized guilt and shame. This one's a big one. People-pleasing to the point of burnout. Like, people-pleasing to your own detriment. Having, like, just the shittiest boundaries, I swear to God. You can be pretty needy and dependent. Engaging in covert forms of self-harm. Like, hidden forms of self-harm. Very discreet. If you show any of that, like, you don't want people to notice because you're scared of being abandoned, you're scared of being judged. Hiding your self-harm. This can include things like eating disorders. A lot of people with emotional over-control face uh, eating disorders. Chronically dissociative. Numb. Empty. That is a really big one. Chronically dissociative. This isn't like an exhaustive list and these aren't these aren't like clinically official things. These are just things that we've noticed about people who internalize their BPD symptoms. These are not exclusive to BPD as well. Like a lot of people with other disorders can experience these things. But yeah, it's just like a noticed pattern. What is the battle behind closed doors? So people with quiet BPD, people who identify with quiet BPD, often struggle with something called emotional over-control. So they often hide or they mask their symptoms, internalize them, out of a fear of rejection and abandonment. It's called quiet BPD because we keep our symptoms quiet or hidden away. They're behind closed doors. For me, like I can't speak for everyone with, who identifies with quiet BPD, but I will tell you about my experiences. So what does my battle look like? A lot of avoidance and fear of conflict. Conflict is really something that's hard for me to cope with. I can't handle it. I've gotten a lot better over the years. 
But conflict of any sort, even a little bit of conflict, you just scare the shit out of me. And to cope with conflict, instead of directly working through it and facing it, I would cope with it through passivity and passive-aggressive behavior. I used to be a really passive-aggressive person, and sometimes I still can be. You know, it, it has taken a lot, like I've gotten a lot better over the years, but looking back, I, I can point out a lot of times where I dealt with conflict in a very passive-aggressive way. Ghosting people, I have a huge problem with ghosting people. Ghosting people after building resentment from people-pleasing. That passivity. I also used to be really uncomfortable with feeling and expressing any emotion, even joy. So not just the uncomfortable emotions, but even the, the nice-feeling ones, too. I used to get really frozen with self-doubt. The self-doubt is a big one. I engaged in a lot of perfectionism. I had a lot of fear of failure. Fear of failure out of fear of abandonment. Failure resulted in abandonment. That's what my mind would go to. That's what I would think. If I fail, I will be abandoned. So I can't fail. Everything I do has to be perfect. If there's anything wrong with me, if I show any vulnerability, if I show any flaws, I'll get rejected. I'll get abandoned. So that is what my quiet BPD experience looks like for me. Over the years, I've done DBT. You know, I learned what DBT was, and I'm actually in a course now, like I'm kind of brushing up on my DBT. I did like a distress tolerance course online, and now I'm doing like a mindfulness one right now, and it's been pretty good so far. I actually really like it. Everyone needs a brush up from time to time, right? So I did dialectical behavior therapy and that really helped me, like it really empowered me. It gave me the tools I needed to cope with just life and conflict. There's also things like schema therapy. There's trauma-informed therapies. Unpacking and processing my trauma was a big thing. Not everyone with BPD grew up with like a traumatic childhood or anything, but you know, you, there's no way you can go through life without some form of trauma. Everybody experiences some form of trauma. So trauma-informed therapy was really good for me. Learning about abuse and boundaries was vital. It was very, very important. I actually cannot stress enough how important it was for me to learn about abuse, what it looked like, and what good, healthy boundaries and holding them looked like. Building self-compassion and self-love and self-worth. That has been very important. Processing grief. It's important to, sometimes you internalize your grief or you even put it aside. You just ignore it. You don't actually process it. Same with a lot of your other emotions. So processing grief and working through that was really healing and finally healing through community and finding a sense of purpose in something bigger than myself 
was really important to me and it helped me solidify my personal identity as well. So those are ways that I've coped personally. And I've said before, everybody has their own journey. Like no recovery journey looks the same as another person's. I wanted to talk to you about some like myths or like misconceptions about quiet BPD. I wanted to talk to you about those because it's important to set the record straight before we get into anything else. You know, I'll like debunk the main four that come up very frequently. The first one is the myth that quiet BPD is basically like high functioning. You'll hear this quite frequently of quiet BPD being labeled as high functioning BPD. Sometimes people won't even call it quiet BPD. They will just say, I have high functioning BPD. Functioning labels are like, I'm just going to be straight up. Functioning labels are ableist as shit. It's not good to use functioning labels in any form for any kind of like mental health condition. So high functioning is an outdated term. And the reason I don't like the functioning labels, like the term high functioning, and I know I'm not the only one, is because it invalidates the internal battle that we have to fight every day. It, in it, it invalidates that battle behind closed doors. It makes it feel like everything is just kind of a struggle Olympics or like a struggle competition. And I just think that that's not fair because it makes people who have this presentation of this disorder feel like, okay, well, I have to get worse and worse and worse for someone to listen to me. And uh, so I just, high functioning, please throw it in the garbage. Please don't use this term. The next one is um, the myth that people with quiet BPD are the ones who aren't toxic. BPD is not toxic by default, okay? And quiet BPD does not make someone morally superior than other people who have BPD. Like, like I said, BPD is not a separate disorder. It is all BPD. Just because someone has BPD doesn't mean that they're toxic by default. It kind of, it's just giving pick-me vibes. Even people who identify as having quiet BPD... Sometimes we'll be like, well, I'm not as bad as, like, the other people or the other subtypes. It's just like, don't do this. Don't do this. Having BPD sucks, in general. People with quiet BPD are not <laughs> more or less toxic than other people with BPD, okay? Next myth. I don't have quiet BPD. I have loud or classic BPD. Okay. So, there's no loud BPD. If you say classic or like normal, I've heard, like I've heard normal BPD, uh, what even is that? Classic versus quiet BPD suggests that quiet BPD is uncommon and it's a pretty common subtype, to be honest. It's a very common presentation of BPD. If you say classic versus quiet, or if you say, like, loud versus quiet, it kind of perpetuates this stereotype 
that people with BPD by default are, like, loud. And quiet BPD is a pretty common subtype for people to identify with. And that leads me to the final misconception. People saying, I would rather have quiet BPD. No, you don't. No, you don't. We're all out here, and it all sucks. I'm not saying that living with any particular subtype is worse or better than other ones. It all sucks. It's just that it's important to acknowledge that BPD doesn't look the same in every person. There are other myths, too, that I... Like, I, there are things that I've been asked... For example, are people with quiet BPD shy? Like, are they, if you're quiet, does that mean that you're, like, shy and soft-spoken? No. No. That's not what that means. It just means you internalize your symptoms. You can internalize your symptoms and be, like, completely outgoing and extroverted and boisterous. Are people with quiet BPD introverted? Not always. A big one is, do people with BPD feel anger? Like, they don't seem to feel anger. Also completely untrue. That's not true. Just because you can't see them being angry doesn't mean that they're, they don't feel angry. It's internalized. I swallow my anger. That's how I cope with it. Because if I express my anger, that creates conflict. And conflict results in abandonment or rejection. So I have to, I, I can't show my anger. That's how people with quiet BPD deal with their anger. They swallow it. And sometimes it bubbles up. Sometimes it bubbles up because you swallow so much anger and you just push it down, you just stuff it right down, and then the pressure just builds up, and sometimes you do have an outburst. So here's the other myth is people with quiet BPD never have outbursts. That's also not true. Sometimes we'll have just like a big outburst at the people closest to us that we know for sure won't abandon us. Some other less common myths or comments that I've heard uh, the people with quiet BPD are avoidant. Um, I don't know. I don't think that has anything to do with quiet BPD. I, it, people are either just avoidant or anxious attachment. I'm not sure. Um, personally, I'm both. Like, I'm pretty disorganized attachment style. I don't think that's, that's tied to my presentation of BPD. And finally... Uh, this myth that quiet BPD is just CPTSD. It's pretty dismissive. Quiet BPD is not just CPTSD because there are different criteria for CPTSD versus quiet BPD. And this is like a whole other episode, but it's not just anything. Okay, there is nuance to this conversation. I understand why people say this and think this. Because the criteria of BPD and CPTSD are pretty close. There's a lot of overlap. And it's not a full overlap. It's a different disorder.
to wrap up, quiet BPD is a subtype of borderline personality disorder that typically presents symptoms inwardly. People with quiet BPD tend to hide their symptoms in order to avoid abandonment. And quiet BPD is not its own disorder. It's still BPD. It's all BPD. And it's not better or worse than other subtypes to live with. So I hope that this was a decent crash course about quiet BPD for you. I'm seeing a lot more conversations about quiet BPD and I think it's really good because it's really important to talk about the different ways that BPD can present itself. BPD doesn't just look like one thing or a couple things. It actually can look like so many things. This like diagnostic criteria it's, it's just guidelines for diagnosing someone. It doesn't encompass all of the nuance that comes with the ways that people with BPD cope with their symptoms, the ways that that can present itself, comorbidities that make everything even more complicated and worse to live with. Before we go... I want to try a mindfulness exercise with you because I'm kind of on this mindfulness kick right now. I'm doing this mindfulness course. I'm really enjoying it. And, you know, if you want to try mindfulness with me, let's do it. Mindfulness is a skill. You can do a lot of things mindfully. It takes practice to be able to do things mindfully and kind of regulate your emotions that way. So one way that you can practice mindfulness is you can choose kind of a mundane everyday activity. And for this exercise, we're going to choose making tea. So mindful tea drinking is a practice of being fully present and attentive while preparing and consuming tea. And it involves focusing on the sensory experience of the tea, including its taste and its aroma, the texture when you're sipping it, as well as the process of brewing it and pouring it. Mindful tea drinking can be a form of meditation as it encourages you to be fully present in the moment and to cultivate a sense of calm and relaxation. It can also be a way to connect with others if you're doing it with somebody else, like sharing tea with your friends or loved ones. That can be a social and bonding experience. I have a best friend that I've known for over a decade. We met in grade 10 there was a place we would go, and that was our spot. And it was a place called Steeps. It was a little tea cafe. It had a lot of amazing quality, fragrant, loose-leaf teas. When you walk into Steeps, the lighting was nice and warm. It was really cozy. All of the furniture was old 
and eclectic. None of it matched. So when you walk in, the furniture, all of the mismatched furniture would be on the left side. And then on the right side, there would be a T wall. And it was lined from top to bottom, left to right, with uniform tins of loose leaf tea that you could go and you could read all the flavors on them. And they were organized from white tea to black tea. And we had a few favorites, but my absolute favorite was called Divine Temple. It was a Japanese green tea. It had bits of dried mango and papaya. My best friend and I, we would buy a cup of tea and the barista would bring it out in little French presses so that you could see the agony of the leaves. And so this is when our mindfulness moments started. And when I drink tea, I always remember this moment. I didn't realize that that was kind of our form of social meditation. That was our sense of calm and relaxation after a long week at school. That was our bonding time. And so when the barista would bring out our French presses of tea. The water was piping hot. Through the glass, you could see the leaves gently, gradually opening up and steeping. And that process is called the agony of the leaves. And being able to just forget everything else and focus on watching the leaves float around and open up, watching the water gradually steep and become more and more saturated with flavor, waiting until the right moment to press the little handle down very slowly and watch it press the leaves together, being able to pick up the French press and gently pour the tea into your little teacup and then cupping the ceramic with your hands and feeling the warmth, bringing it up to your mouth and smelling it and just taking in in one deep breath. A nice way to meditate and a nice way to be mindful. And taking that first sip after the tea has cooled a bit, when I have a moment with some green tea, I remember Pressing them down, pouring the tea, taking everything in through a big mindful breath. So mindfulness doesn't have to be 
spending a bunch of money on yoga stuff and then going to yoga. It doesn't have to be going all the way to the park and just like meditating in a field in nature. It can be those things. And those things are really nice. But you can also be mindful with the mundane. I find that being mindful with the mundane brings beauty to it. You learn to appreciate things like steeping a cup of tea and drinking it. Very often in our lives, we don't take moments to just know think. It's important to be able to appreciate these little things in our day that so many of us take for granted. And so, if you do want to practice a mindful moment, pretend you are in steeps, boil the kettle, listen to the sound of the kettle, watch the agony of the leaves, or at least if you're using a tea bag, you can watch the water steep and be infused with flavor. You can watch the steam. You can breathe in the aroma and regulate your breath. And you can savor the flavor. Nice. We did it. That was my first podcast episode. That's so exciting. I really want to thank you for joining me and listening to my story and my little mindfulness moment too. In the next episode, I'm going to sit down with my friend, Dr. Juliet McClendon. They are a clinical psychologist and we're going to get to talk about how BPD can develop. So we're going to talk about the biosocial model of BPD, what an invalidating environment really means, We'll go over some stuff about black and white thinking, aka splitting, and I'm going to get their clinical perspective on the assessment and treatment of BPD as well, so stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Quiet, not silent. We can create a perfect world in our heads. As a matter of fact, there was something in his past.